Welcome to all those tuning in yet again to the Southwest Climate Podcast. It's uh, March 6th, and as always, I'm here with uh, Mike Crimmins. Welcome back, Zach. That's right. I, uh, I, I had a sojourn to somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> somewhere else. You went around the world like three times. But I'm happy to be back thinking about climate and weather here in the Southwest because I think I miss quite a bit of action. So were you checking the weather every day back here when you were, you know... You know Trans-Pacific? I, you know, I occasionally check Mad Weather blog. You know, okay, the, good. The staples, but I didn't, I didn't pay attention too much to the, to the daily fluctuations. Okay, so today, uh, or recently, actually, we've finally merged into the El Nino that That's we right. had been anticipating. I told you. This made you, this made finally. you, this made you correct, <laughs> I think, but. I had to pull belated, some strings, though. Belatedly correct. I had to pull some strings. I had to cash in some, some capital there to get this El Nino finally on the books. So that's probably the newest news, although it's not all that news because, you know, people are calling this the No Nino, even though we, we are now in officially uh, El, El Nino conditions. It's kind of the, the last dance of the night. El Nino decides to, to ask the atmosphere to dance, and then there you go. So we'll, we'll talk about that, some of its implications, and where El Nino may be going this summer and into next winter. So, yeah, we'll look out a year in advance. But first, let's just give a recap of where we are and how we got here. In terms of precipitation, which most people care about in the winter, uh, although it has been warmer than average, we'll talk, we'll talk about that too. December was actually quite wet for, for California. The only month really that California has experienced wet conditions over across much of, much of its area. And Arizona, you know, had spotty above average conditions in Tucson specifically or around mm-hmm. Tucson, the metropolitan region and in the Four Corners region. And then, which includes New Mexico. Elsewhere, it was, Near average, slightly, slightly below average. So fast forward a month in January, California becomes bone dry, particularly in northern, northern half of California. Southern Arizona gets above average precipitation as much as two, three hundred percent above average in some areas. Four Corners still does well. And a lot of New Mexico, uh, is above average up to uh, above three hundred percent of average in, in places. Fast forward another month into February. Uh, California, for the most part, is still dry, uh, although not bone dry, except for southern portions of California. The southern half of Arizona has been virtually uh, precipitationless. Well, uh, there, there's been a few storms, I should say, but it's been uh, much below average in the southern half of Arizona. Four Corners still does pretty, pretty yeah, well. Yeah, done well with a couple of recent storms, right? Uh, According to the maps that I'm looking at now, which, you know, there's not a lot of stations up there. So there, there, there's some caution. Yeah. That should be some, even some, some anecdotal reports was the, the last couple of storms, at least the last storm did put down some decent precipitation, even some snow on the Chisca Mountains on the far northeast corner of Arizona. The Four Corners region in New Mexico has done pretty much well for December, January, and February. And again, New Mexico in, in February saw uh, a lot of its uh, region experience above average precipitation. That being said, the snowpack conditions have not sort of reflected above average precipitation. It's a story across the West this winter. I mean, I, I, if you look at the entire Western U.S., you see some patterns of average to above average precipitation. This, you know, I'm talking from from the Pacific Northwest all the way down to us. And if you toggle your map from, say, looking at you know, how much precip has fallen to how much snow has fallen. The big story in the Pacific Northwest is that they're they're coming in at near average precipitation with almost zero snowpack. We have a, a fairly similar problem in the far Southwest. Uh, thankfully, 
Colorado and Utah have actually been able to store up some of that precipitation in the form of snow, which has not been the case across much of the West. Yeah, so the snowpack conditions as of today, March 6th, for Arizona, with the exception of Flagstaff, which has really been boosted from... They get one storm. They got one basically, storm. Yeah, that was basically it. And it was last week, so who knows if, how long that's going to stick around. But the Gila, the Salt, and other basins are much below average. All of them are, are, are coming in at below 50% of average. Southern New Mexico, the, the basins that have a snowpack there as well are all below 50% of average. So the story from basically the Pacific Northwest through California, California is in a horrible state. Oh, they're in uncharted territory, I think, in a lot of respects. So the drought in California, which has been a big topic, yeah. even though December with the atmospheric river that soaked a lot of California, yep. that's basically been its... Yeah, that was saving. it. I mean, and they, I mean, that, if you remember back, that was, that was a warm storm. And any storm that they've had subsequently has been a warm storm. Very high freezing levels. They would get precip that would come in, but they have not been able to build a snowpack uh, along the Sierra this winter. So the northern Sierra is fifteen around fifteen percent of average. Yeah. The central Sierra is around twenty percent of average, and the southern Sierra is around twenty percent of average. Right. So another uh, an, another dire situation for California in terms of of snowpack, and obviously that has severe implications for um, their their water supply. Okay, Mike. So weather wise, how did how did we how did we unfold? How do we get there? Yeah. You know, maybe we should before we even move into that, we just to throw on the table and you mentioned this a little bit earlier too, is to talk about the temperature so we make sure we don't forget about it. But we saw in the Tucson National Weather Service post their winter climate report just a couple of days ago and this December, January, February period was the warmest on record. For Tucson, so I, I don't want to let that let that go. And if you look at some of the the climate maps down here, which will we can sort of weave into the the weather pattern situation. Much of California, uh, Arizona, Nevada have experienced either top couple year records or the warmest winter on record. So we take that December, January, February period. And if you go into New Mexico, it actually cools off to near average to get to the eastern part of the state, which, you know, we've seen this in the last couple of years based on this this background weather pattern with us basically being stuck underneath this ridge of high pressure. Right. So let me let me put some numbers to that because I'm looking at a map here that's for February, statewide average in Arizona for February is the warmest on record. Warmest on record. 121 right. years strong. That's pretty from. that's hard to do. California, warmest on record. Yep. Nevada, second warmest Utah, warmest, and then both Colorado and New Mexico come in at 108 out of 121. Yeah, and they kind of, and if you, you know, you look down sub-regionally, if you were on the east side of the Continental Divide, you got a couple of these backdoor cold, you know, all that cold polar air, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, made it as far as the front range of the Rockies and was able to sort of pool and park there. So that was, that was the dividing line right there was literally topography of whether you're going to come in with a normal winter, or if you're going to be on the, on the west side of the divide, you're going to be in the, the heat and the drought like the rest of us. Yeah, so basically west of the Rockies, yeah. no state for the December, January, February average has experienced temperatures less than 109th right. out of 121. Yeah, all sort of top 10% warmest years. Um, this, would, this would have been in that, that highest percentile of years. If you look at the east... Yeah. It's a different story. This at least a second, if not third year in a row that I, I remember where we had distinct contrast Absolutely. between the West and the East. Yep. I mean, polar opposites. Right. 
Oh, is that foreshadowing? It is foreshadowing. That's excellent. <laughs> that's the limit of my wit right now. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's not bad for a Friday. I'm so, Mike, talk, talk us through this a little bit, like weather patterns here. How is this, you know, what people are calling this, this dipole Right. So, this, you know, and this, this pattern has been with us enough over the last couple of years that it's, to my knowledge, is a new term, which is warm west, cold east. It's not, it's not very imaginative, and I don't think it even makes a, a terribly good acronym. I haven't really thought that one out, but it's the jet stream, right? And we've, you could probably run, or we could go back over our notes from exactly a year ago when we were trying to dissect last winter, and it looks, it looks almost exactly the same. And I know some of us have family back east, and so I foolishly assured my family that last winter was the worst winter they would ever see. And this one actually topped that one, which was, it's kind of hard to do. So again, think of that jet stream pattern that, you know, high speed uh, river of air about the, the level in the atmosphere you fly your airplanes at when we're going back and forth across the U.S. And if that jet stream is bulging towards the north, south of the jet stream is going to be warm air, um, what we call a ridge or be under high pressure. And if it's sort of bowing to the south, then you're going to have that cold air north of the jet stream. So you can emit, you know, envision a big sort of S on its side across the United States. And we've been underneath the ridge with the jet stream to our north, which is where all the storms go actually with that too. And then to the eastern U.S. and it breaks right through the northern Great Plains. And with it is that, that whole idea of the, the lobes of the polar vortex pushing down across the eastern U.S. That pattern yet again has emerged not quite as stuck um, as we've seen in the last couple of years, it's been able to sort of move around a bit, but certainly, man, you can look, look in any given week and you certainly see that ridge in the west and trough in the east. So that's obviously that relates to the low snowpack conditions, but we've also had a lot of precip. I mean, depending on where you are in, <clears throat> yeah. in, I mean, if you're in the southern, southern Arizona, December and January were, were, were pretty good. February, yep. not so good. We've also had some precip more recently that yep. helps. So it's not just that you're getting warm air, but you're, you're able to actually draw in southern uh, moisture from the, the subtropics, more or less? Yeah, and a lot of the storms that we've seen so far this year have been what we call digging troughs. And so what they are is they're, they're little waves of energy that are they're kind of riding up and over the ridge in the west. And as they sort of come down on the, the lee side of that ridge, they form into little waves and they break off into little um, low-pressure systems. And in the Southwest, we just happen to be at a really good spot to, to receive some of that energy. And when they've been able to break off, they kind of come right down to Arizona. And we've also had a lot of moisture available to us in the East Pacific that we, we haven't really seen um, in the last 10 years. And so it's like that combination of, we call these digging troughs, these little closed lows that will come down here. They'll pick up some moisture and they'll put down some precepts. So you can imagine then that Arizona and New Mexico can kind of benefit from these. And you can also see, hopefully see in sort of that visualization is how much of California wouldn't, wouldn't receive anything out of a situation like that. And that's, that's been the big weather maker for us. And I think the, the big important part of that too is, is in that situation, those are not cold storms. They right. don't have any cold air to work with. They're little, you know, lobes of energy that come down, pick up some moisture. And so that's what we've seen is we've seen fairly warm storms most of the winter. And that means this, the elevation in which snow falls is, is, yeah, is higher. Super high. Yeah. So then the, the, the question is, and transitioning into, you know, our good friend El Nino, the topic of this podcast, more or less, like what's the, what's the relation with, with El Nino this year? 
the backstory on this as we've been suggesting or that, you know, that NOAA Climate Prediction Center has been suggesting that El Nino will materialize. Well, it's sort of been present for a while and now they've officially said that, okay, it's here because some index have, have been met. And so, but it's weak. I mean, yeah. it's hovering basically around like the threshold of what an, what would one would consider an, an El Nino. Yeah, it's an El like Nino. El Nino in lowercase letters. You know, the signal's not. Who cares, there. right? Yeah. <laughs> Do we care? I care just for um, vindication so that, you know, that the fact that we've been saying that El Nino was going to show up every month for, I think, 12 months now, that we can at least put that in the wind column for us. But other than that, it probably has no real practical implications for us down here. So this is a this is a quote from Noah yesterday. It says, the long anticipated El Nino has finally arrived. Due to the weak strength of the El Nino, widespread or significant global weather pattern impacts are not anticipated. However, uh, certain impacts associated with El Nino may appear this spring in parts of Northern Hemisphere, such as what are the normal conditions along the U.S. Gulf Coast. I'm not sure that that Im- implicates us here in in the right. so- southwest. You know, a question that I received is some people were wondering that lived in Tucson that ha- we have experienced uh, above average precipitation in Tucson. Like, is this a, a, a signal of, of of El Nino? Yeah. What's, I, your, what's your thoughts on that? I don't, I don't think so. Okay, so the overall jet stream pattern for the winter has been, I think you'd have to characterize it as unusual because, you know, if we look at some of our maps and we look at, you know, that word anomaly, meaning just is it is it different from what you'd expect from average? you see some of these patterns emerge where the jet stream clearly has been stuck because when it's stuck, it tends to carve out extremes in, in either direction. And I think you, it would be hard to argue that we haven't had extremes in, in either direction. So is that jet stream pattern what you'd expect to see with an El Nino? No, not really. El Nino is not an individual weather event. It's like when people, you know how we it drives us nuts when people say, it monsooned at my house last night or man, did you get monsooned last week? It's kind of the same way if we say, man, we got El Nino'd last week. You know, we, it's, we can't really use it that way because, again, El Nino is, is really representing a, a shift in the climate system towards a propensity for a lot of different, a lot, uh, a stacking up of certain type of weather pattern, right? We've seen everything this winter. We've seen some wet storms, but it has not been in sort of the typical way you'd see things stack up. Have there been flavors of El Nino from time to time that you're like, hey, yeah, that boy, I wish that would keep going. Yeah. Has it looked like La Nina in, in, for periods of weeks in this winter? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that, that as well. Does the, does the ridging, the persistent ridging, mm-hmm. have any relation to sort of the tropical Pacific Ocean? It does. And thanks for softballing that to me. That was, that was actually excellent. Um, so if you, if you read... I'm here for your mic. <laughs> you, got, you got me covered. So some some emerging discussion in the the climate community. There's some papers that have come out, and I think you'll see this sort of pop up more in the blog discussions, and it, it may show up in the the climate.gov Enso blog next week. There was some foreshadowing that they might talk about this as well. Is that there's this idea that when you have lots and lots of thunderstorm activity, typhoon activity in the far western Pacific, that it will create a jet stream pattern like we've seen for the last couple of years. And what it also is linked to is that it's typically the way the the Pacific looks right before it's about to move into a full-fledged El Nino. So there's a, a couple of things there that suggest that El Nino has been trying, we've been sort of moving in an El Nino-like direction for actually a couple of years now. 
and the jet stream pattern has been sort of foreshadowing that we're, we're going to do that as well. And what that jet stream pattern looks like, if you look back through the historical records, is very, very strong ridge of high pressure across the western U.S. in a, a trough across the east. So they call this um, an ENSO precursor type pattern. And again, it's, it's pretty fresh in the literature and um, still is going to need to be sort of poked at. But it kind of fits the bill, you know, like we've been trying to do El Nino. This ridge has been very, very persistent. It's been unusual. So would that insinuate, though, that if it's a precursor, that if El Nino actually materialized, that that pattern would break down? Yes. And that was where, you know, I think we've been talking about for a year now that, and again, if you think back to the the forecast, you know, this was in the private sector and Climate Prediction Center and everybody, the idea that we were moving towards an El Nino, that pattern should have gone away. Right, because you couldn't have had, and if you again think about the very simple mechanism, and I don't understand the real deep dynamical mechanisms, but if you've got a lot of that tropical convection in the far western Pacific, and it moves towards the central Pacific, which it does in an El Nino, which it does in an El Nino, and which is why, for the most part, um, why we haven't sort of declared El Nino at any, you know, because it hasn't moved, it hasn't moved, because yeah. the West Pacific has been very active, the Central Pacific has been very quiet. You know, you just put all these things sort of together approximately, and the jet stream pattern has been very consistent. So all those things sort of fit together. And what it would take to move is a weakening of the easterlies. Yep, exactly. You need the sort of the weakening of the easterlies and then the tropical convection sort of follow the warm water to that point. And what we also haven't seen, and you've seen in a lot of the indices, is that when that tropical convection sort of moves away, and also because it's following that warm water, there should be a cooling in the far western Pacific and also a, de- a commensurate decrease in that convection. So if you think about that, the whole jet stream pattern is then going to reorganize with that, that new area of convection, right. which would give us a more canonical, you know, a typical type El Nino signal, which would have been a stronger subtropical jet, no ridge, really leaning more towards of that parade of storms through California and Arizona. We didn't really have that this year. Because that focal point of convection in the western pacific has not moved east we've been in this sort of persistent ridge the atmospheric response yeah. is sort of like persistent maybe not the right word this this year but more persistent than other, you would otherwise expect yeah i think you know if you look at the last couple of years yeah it was like more persistent this year the, the trot that convection was sort of it was moving around a little bit it was sort of kind of ebbing and flowing but if again if you look at the averages for the whole season, it still was clearly much more active in the West Pacific than it was in the Central Pacific. So that that is another further indication that El Nino was never really in control. So has this, okay, because I've heard talk about this El Nino being unlike others we've seen in the past, so not having a very good analog in the past. But yet we've also, we've also seen that this persistent ridging has been present the last couple of winters. Right. So what 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 makes this? Do you have any thoughts on what makes this tropical flavor different than than the past? I you know and again I don't know and I think that this is kind of the area of, of research. It, it, you also have to sort of think too here that our historical record and our our sort of ledger of El Ninos and our dissection of them is not very it's not very long. Yeah. We look for analogs and we don't have many to sort of look from. We're building it each year, yeah. right? And so you know we've we've got realistically you know, 10,000 years of El Ninos that have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere and clearly, clearly longer, but we only have data on a, a, like a handful of them. So to me, this, it's been kind of exciting because it's been, it's been really interesting to watch. And, and again, remember what we were looking at was we were looking at 
sea surface temperatures. They indeed did warm up in the Eastern Pacific, but they didn't cool down in the Western Pacific. So the Western Pacific still had plenty of energy to do what it was doing and do its thing. So, you know, the ocean was kind of like, it was, it gave you like two things at once. It, it should have sort of shifted away from having warm water in the Western Pacific and the Eastern, but it was like, oh, we'll, just, we'll have warm water everywhere and, you know, like see what happens with that. And that was sort of the unusual element with this. So the bleeding edge also with, in addition to what you're talking about now, because these are relatively new, you know, paper scientific studies that are coming out that are looking at the ENSO precursor and, yeah. and, and it's how really, does it tie in with sea Arctic? Or well, ice, so that's where ice, I was going to go. go. Right. So the yeah. next, so the other, you know, like the winter phenomenon that has gotten a lot of play in, 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 in recent years is, is what's going on in the Arctic. Right. How are right. these things can, you know, combining this, this year? Exactly. And it, it, it seems to me every paper I read, I get a little more confused. Like, like what are all the moving parts and pieces And the simple sort of isolating a single mechanism is clearly not working. These interplays at different time scales. Every year we're given a little, a slightly different flavor. So it gives you some reinforcement of a mechanism, but then cancels out two other mechanisms that you thought were actually working together. You know, this year was really interesting the Arctic Oscillation, um, which has been sort of a, a somewhat easy sell on why it's been so cold in the east, has actually been very positive, and probably because the way that the way that the the index is actually calculated, right? Right. It's, so for the for the listeners, though, that positive would otherwise suggest warmer conditions. Yes, exactly. Right. right. Yes, yeah, so because it's you, you typically you're tightening up the, exactly, you're right? Not allowing that, 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 that cold air to sl- spill sort of slacken yeah. and slosh east. So so it wasn't a very good diagnostic. Um, and it wasn't very, it's not predictable anyways. So, but even if you just sort of look back at the winter and you go, well, that, wait a minute, that doesn't work with my way I thought it worked last year and those kinds of, and I was even sort of under this, this impression of like, oh, all I have to do is watch the AO and then we'll have a really good clear picture of what's going to go on with, or, you know, diagnostically of what the pattern would be. And that, that's not the case at all this winter. Yeah. And it's worth like pointing out that the Arctic oscillation, that index has a, has a time scale that you know, uh, changes over, over days to weeks. Yeah. It's very high. Yeah. It's high like frequency. North Atlantic oscillation, Arctic oscillation, very low predictability, very volatile. Um, but still sort of useful when you look back over a couple of months, can it tell you anything about what was going on? And so it's a really, it's kind of an interesting year where if you just looked at the indices, you'd see this, one of your El Nino indices was like borderline to even moderate for a period of time. And your AO was positive. If you had no other information, you would have suggest that would have suggested that California was wet and the east was warm. And those are actually <laughs> they're completely wrong. But I think it brings up a good point because it, we do know and we're fairly confident that the tropical Pacific Ocean is the dominant um player in this. To it the, sure seems to be. To the point where if you have, you know, a really strong signal there, which we didn't, when you had a really strong signal there, then you're you have you know, more confidence in, in the weather response or the, the atmospheric response. Yeah. But when it's on sort of the, you know, the middle ground, like it was this year, then you, other things have come into play. Right. Or, the, or the, you know, even the index that you're looking at, like the sea surface temperatures in the middle of the Pacific, clearly that wasn't enough information by itself to tell us, you know, what was going on. I mean, we know that, but it, it sure is helpful to to be able to sort of hang your hat on a single index. In some years, it's nailed it, right? I mean, you know, like Nino 3.4 with the big El Ninos of the past, it was very clear. Everything sort of, you know, kind of organized around it. This year and this flavor has not been all that terribly descriptive. 
Yeah, and you just we don't have the numbers like you were mentioning before. If we had more a, a larger sample size of like sort of weak and moderate and strong El Ninos, it would be much more robust to do statistics and understand how precipitation is varies within those those different categories. But you know, you're looking at sample sizes on the order of of, of fifteen yeah. with a high variability, and no, it's and the, and there are yeah, like the the fifteen actually don't they don't overlap that well. So like it's almost like eight different flavors within 15 samples or something like that. I have also seen some, looked at some of the model plumes and, and saw that ENSO or the above average sea surface uh, temperatures are, are forecasted to, to persist. Some yeah. models are suggesting it into, into next winter. Yeah. Any, yeah. any thoughts on, yeah, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's far out. It's far out. We're right back to where we started, you know, a year ago when we saw the monster Kelvin wave, you know, come across that slug of warm water that was moving across. So, it sure seems like at some point, and again, maybe because the atmosphere is starting to pay a little more attention to the, the ocean patterns now, too late too late in the night. Yeah, maybe maybe this is where we're sort of leaning here. I guess the, the important thing to, to note, and this is what's noted in, in all the analyses, is that this is a really hard time of the year for El Nino or ENSO models to look forward. It's that so-called spring predictability barrier where they're, they run into some constructive interference with just the seasonal cycle sort of changing again in the Northern Hemisphere. So their confidence becomes quite a bit lower this time of year. Again, this idea of ENSO precursor, the idea that we haven't quite, we haven't quite done it yet, the fact that there's another Kelvin wave that's actually moving across the Pacific right now, I mean, and it, those are all things that would suggest that we're not quite done with this one. So yeah, I guess we'll just have to sort of see. What we are nearing the end of, though, is our winter precipitation. It's very true, yes. You know, we're heading into, you know, we have a month left of potential um, storms that can really help boost the, the snowpack conditions and provide the water for, you know, our reservoirs, you know, and then April, May, June, you know, I then we're looking toward the monsoon again already. It's true. And I, I think our chances are pretty slim on making up much of any snowpack at this point. And, you know, and that's just, that's playing a couple things is that the pattern, the access to cold air and to cold storms has been almost non-existent this winter. I just don't see that changing much in the last month. And again, like you said, we've got four six weeks of a chance left here in the Southwest. So in terms of the streamflow forecast, and I unfortunately don't have the, the March one, they come out every um, first, of, first of the month. So the NRCS and national, the Natural Resource Conservation Service hasn't updated for the newest maps. So I'm looking at old ones, so keep that in mind. But the February 1st ones don't paint a good picture for the Colorado River. Streamflow forecasts, in the spring, total spring streamflow forecasts are below 70% of average. So that's that's not good news for uh, the basins, the Colorado River base uh, reservoirs that are already close to sort of those uh, key thresholds that will instigate some uh, conservation measures. The Rio Grande, which is you know supports Elephant Butte Reservoir and and other reservoirs, is also also have low streamflow forecasts. So those numbers are probably change a little bit, get a little bit more optimistic with the recent recent storm in, in early March, but not probably much. Not much, no. Well, we're getting close to that. I think April 1st is that kind of magic magic time, time spot or time stamp where you're pretty much committed at that point, right? There's not going to be a lot of a lot of change past that point. So we've got, you know, got less than four weeks to really 
sort of dial it in. Right. And that sort of optimism early on in the year with, with El Nino looking so favorable to, to becoming a, you know, a moderate, at worst, a moderate event. You yeah. know, some people were even thinking, <clears throat> some people were even thinking it was going to be a, um, a I think strong he's leaning event. in towards me. <laughs> is there any, is there any recorded record of me ever saying anything like that? I doubt, I doubt we'll ever find anything like that. <laughs> yeah. You, so, you know, that optimism clearly has, has I'm an optimist. Yeah. Should I claim a Monster El Nino event for next year? So we could just make this sort of a perennial March 1st podcast sort of thing. No, there was indication. I'm not, you know, putting you on the spot here. There was a lot of indication tilting. I was wish favor. casting. I, I, I will not deny it by any means. I was totally wish casting at that point. But, you know, I think this actually plays into the, we don't have a lot of analogs to go by. And yeah. this is another sort yeah. of novel, novel winner in building our mental forecasting ability as we go through this. Okay. So Mike, any, any, anything else? Like what, what, what should we look for? Should anything? we look for, you know, I'm still holding out for one or two storms in Arizona in the next six weeks. It's almost like we should come up with a, a like a storm bracket or something like but the, that. But the point is we're, we're not quite done with winter I don't think we're done with yet. winter, no. We didn't even we didn't talk about this, but we can probably touch on this some, some more in future podcasts. But the East Pacific and that horseshoe of warm water is, boy, it is still there. You know what would be – it's what's driving this whole idea of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation Index super positive, and we haven't seen it in a long time, and it is not – doesn't seem to be a flighty so what does uh, that temporary mean? thing. I don't know. I'm not sure. All I know is is that I I think it's part of the reason that we've had some moisture to work with. That mm. East Pacific is still very warm. It's what fueled a lot of the tropical storm activity last fall. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Not so we've had warm water off the coast of Southern California, okay. coast of Mexico. Yeah. That was more of what I was sort of thinking. And that seems to have been a good moisture source for us last uh, monsoon season, last fall, tropical, and I think this winter too. So Yeah, we touched on this in the last podcast, but it's worth mentioning too, the link between that ridge and that warm water. That's right. Yep. I mean, basically because that ridge has been present. Well, you you, you described it that Yeah, so I, I read a, an analysis by one of the Pacific laboratories with NOAA that was pointing out that this very strong ridge pattern across along the West Coast is unusual enough that they typically will have a northwest wind through the wintertime along the coast, which would drive upwelling. upwelling. Um, basically, it drives a, a down coastal current, and that down coastal current, because of the Coriolis force, diverges from the coast and then causes coastal upwelling. And if you, if you don't have that for four years, you start to see weird sea surface temperature patterns. And that seems to be, I mean, again, we did another ridgy, ridgy year along the western coast. So that warm water is still there. It's even warmer. And that's a new energy source. Provides a local feedback, local, yeah, yeah. local impact. Yeah, local impact anyways. I mean, it's if you looked at that area, if you looked at it, you know, a year or two ago, uh, more than two years ago, that was a very cold, dry spot in the Pacific Ocean. And storms would run into it and they'd get killed by it. You know, like tropical storms couldn't do anything. Now it's warmer. Now it's like a plume of moisture that any passing storm has a chance to grab onto. I'm really curious to see if it's going to have any impact on next fall's tropical storm season. Sea surface temperatures, they don't, they don't typically vary on the order of a couple of days, right? So once they, get in, once they get set up, they usually can persist for a while, which is why we have some forecastability with them. Next podcast, we can talk a little bit about the upcoming fire season because yeah, the winter call. would have passed for the most part, mm -hmm. and we can have some indication on 
some of the fire risks that's upcoming. I and mean, th- th- that's going to be the big story going into the, the, the next few months as we transition out of the winter and into our, into our historically dry part. Yeah. And it's going to be, I think a mixed bag for the Southwest. And I think California is in, I think California is in a world of trouble actually yet again this year. So. All right. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in and we'll come back in a month and, and update you on the weather and climate situation here in, in, in the Southwest. Do you have any bets on whether El Nino will still be here? I think it's going to be here. Okay. Yeah. Just, um, just I think of... it's going to, I think it's going to be, and I, I say that not completely definitively, but pretty, pretty sure. All right. We'll check in. I'm, I'm going that. with the persistence forecast now that we, <laughs> now that we've actually merged into it. Fair enough. All right. That's, that's the easy bet. Yeah. You can take the easy one. That's good. What day is today? March 6th? Friday, March 6th. March 6th. Are we ongoing? I just don't know where to get the information, man. Is there any is there any recorded record of me ever saying anything like that? I doubt. I doubt we'll ever find anything like that.